Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week's episode features So Young Kang. She's the chief marketing officer of EOS Products. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Michael Bumgarner. He's the founder of Kanuka. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to be here with So Young Kang. She is the Chief Marketing Officer of EOS Products. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, um, before we jump into your um, your backstory, I want to go way, way, way back in time with you. Um, it's my favorite question to ask since we're a career journey focused show to ask about when you were a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? So can you go back in time to that 11 year old you and think about, um, you know, what you saw your future like as a career? Oh, God, 11-year-old me, um, I think, wanted, uh, this is a very odd dream for an 11-year-old to have, but 11-year-old me wanted to be an architect of all things. Um, I actually grew up a big fan of both art and design as well as math and science, and I think I had it in my brain as a young child that architecture was like the perfect marriage between these two halves of my brain and these two disciplines that otherwise wouldn't come together in any other um, normal job. And so from the time I was little, I was fascinated with architecture. How did you even know that that was a career? Like, did did somebody introduce that idea to you? Oh, I wish I had like a really um, fancy story about how my parents took me on these like whirlwind tours across Europe. But actually, it's nothing as sophisticated as that. I'm pretty sure that my introduction to architecture was um, Mr. Brady on the Brady Bunch. (laughs) And that was my first intro into what it meant to be an architect. And I thought, I mean, it was like that was my favorite show of all time. And so um, to me, there could be nothing more glamorous than being one of the Brady parents when I grew up. Well, um, I am. I was a very big fan of the Brady Bunch, um, and there are people who watch the show, you know, in repeats like we did, and then there are people who never watch the show, like two camps, right? There's no like really in between. Um, so it's very cool for me to meet someone who like actually, you know, really um, enjoyed all those old episodes. Loved it. Um, so did you um, get to fulfill that dream? Are, are you an architect? You know, I'm I'm gonna a sort of an architect, I suppose. But I, it, when I think specifically about architecture as like a legit field, I fulfilled the dream um, in some ways because I actually went to school for architecture. So for my undergrad, I um, I chose to go to MIT because they have one of the longest standing architecture programs in the country, and I majored in architecture. And during my summers, I actually interned. Um, at a couple of different firms to understand what the career was like. And and I, I really I really love the discipline and the education. Um, it's a discipline that actually forces you to truly marry the two halves of your brain between things that are conceptual, design-oriented, um, you, you know, in, inspirational and emotional. And then the other side, which is much more analytical, engineering, problem-solving, um, and um, data-driven, and basically take those two halves and, and force you to create a solution that that satisfies both. And and I loved it. I loved the study of architecture. I would say that I was, um, you know, I was really torn when I left undergrad about whether or not I wanted to c- continue my career. And one of the things that I did was I, I continued to explore a number of different career paths. 
um, including where I ultimately ended up in consulting. But one of the things that I did to sort of like hold on to the magic a little bit longer was that I applied to a Fulbright fellowship and I was able to actually travel, um, you know, across the world to Korea and study architectural theory and history um, as part of a graduate program in Seoul. And that was like my one year sort of, I guess, um, break before I had to come back and, and have a real job. Um, okay, so let's talk about the process of having an internship in the field that you have your heart set on, um, because a lot of our listeners are actually students, and um, they might have expectations, some reasonable, some not, of what um, what they're going to learn at that internship and what it's how it's going to set them up for success later. Um, when you were at your internships at those firms, were you actually like doing architecture jobs or were you like filing papers? It was probably a little bit of both. Um, I'm not going to lie. And I think that today's internships are much more, I think today's approach to internships that companies take can be a lot more, um, you know, progressive in terms of really giving students a shot at um, really creating tremendous value. We've had some interns within EOS products where I am now who have really contributed tremendously to the, the work content and, um, and what we do um, as a marketing team overall. I think in architecture, because it's a very specific discipline and to be totally honest, you actually have to be certified and pass a number of tests and make sure you're not like, you know, gonna create a, something that's problematic in the real world. I, that There you're really doing um, some degree of administrative support and um, a little bit of learning the design process versus doing the design process yourself. So I think when you're approaching an internship, I think really understanding and teasing apart the difference between this is what the career is versus this is what my job is today is an important factor so that you can better assess whether you want to build a career in that path ultimately, even if it's just going to take you more training and learning before you can do the job that you want to do um, further down the journey. So you mentioned just um, before that you... Um, we had this opportunity to do this Fulbright Fellowship before you got this other job. Why did there have to be another career? Why couldn't it be architecture? So, um, you know, just on a personal level, I, I had been going through, um, you know, some personal changes. My, my dad passed away my last year of college. I knew that um, I really wanted to be able to stand up on my own two feet. And a career in architecture does require you to get an advanced degree. And unfortunately, it also requires you to sort of, um, you know, scrimp and save for a while before you can really make your make your um, imprint on the rest of the world. And so I wanted to be financially independent from the time that I graduated from school. I didn't want to um, create any sort of additional stress for my mom as you know, she was sort of journeying into this next phase for her um, in her life. And so that was a big um, moment for me personally to be able to um, to be independent. And I was able to do that by finding a, um, you know, a, a career in in management consulting, which is, you know, for somebody who's fresh out of school, a really solid career path to start on. It ended up being an unexpected gift. I would say I started off going into the career, wanting to be responsible, accountable, and, and financially independent. What I actually got out of my um, career in management consulting, which in varying ways kind of spanned the first decade of my career, ended up being um, a, a way of looking at everything that I do today, thinking about things strategically in structured ways, applying um, big picture frameworks, thinking about things at a high level, like, you know, 30,000 feet before I zoom down into the details. All of these disciplines were things that were um, instilled in me 
as a young management consultant. And so I'm really grateful that what I took away from the career was much more than just the, you know, the, the job that paid the bills. Um, but what I really took away were principles and a way of thinking for the rest of my career. Um, you mentioned this idea of um, feeling stable, financially secure. I guess there's a sense of like responsibility, right? To be able to um, help your mom um, if she needed it. Um, was this like the sense of responsibility something that's always been with you? It was Or was that something that this, you know, um, sad, tragic event in your family kind of pushed you into? It's always been with me. Um, I often talk about it as being a factor, um, it just sort of two specific factors of, of who I am. Number one, I'm the eldest child. Um, and, you know, you often hear sort of like the older older child inherits all of like the responsibility and the and, and sort of the, um, you know, that that uh, that approach to life in general. And then the second thing is, I think, growing up as an immigrant um, in a family where I was the oldest family member who spoke English fluently. And so there was a lot of responsibility that fell on my shoulders. I remember from a, you know, from a very young age, helping my parents out with their business. I remember from a very young age, helping my parents navigate things like picking an HMO plan for our health insurance and being the person who had to go through at the age of, I think I was 13, I had to go through all of the insurance documentation and, and be able to recommend what I thought would be the appropriate plan for our entire family. Um, these are things that are really formative for, um, you know, for, for a young person and really kind of teach you to be um, just rely, reliable, um, accountable, responsible, all of these things that I think um, really shaped who I was. Even as a 21-year-old graduating from college, it was something that I, I took very seriously. So young, the task of picking the right plan for adults um, is really challenging. So I can imagine it felt a, like a big task um, at the time you were thirteen. It was, and I and but I think that there's something um, there's something to be said for um, you know kind of triumph through challenge. I think that all of us we we all grow up with our own challenges. They, they don't all look like my challenges, but. The fact is that to be able to look back at things that challenged you through your life and be able to turn them into into superpowers, I think is really um, a, a good outlook on life. I think of those moments as dignity building. I I'm yeah. really love talking with my kids about that, um, you know, when they have to sort of suffer through something or do something that they're super uncomfortable with. You know that feeling you get when you're nervous and like you feel like your whole body is like radiating a type of heat that's like going from the, your head to your toes and um, your chest gets tight, like moving through those and actually doing whatever it is, even if it's, you know, for my kids when they're younger, it was like ordering their own food at a restaurant. Like That's right. talk to the waiter, make eye contact. Like, these are all dignity building yeah. um, moments. And I think that they really do shape your ability to navigate the world um, on a daily basis. That's fantastic. I, I love that. And, you know, it reminds me of a comment like I, I was I spoke on a panel about a year ago and, um, you know, the, the question that was asked well, that was posed is like, what is your superpower? And at first I was going to say my superpower is that I take on challenges and I'm not afraid. And then I realized that that was completely wrong. It's not that I take on challenges and I'm not afraid. I take on challenges and act despite being afraid. And that I, I love thinking of that as being a, a dignity building um, moment. Yeah, because when, um, I mean, I think about it in kids because um, <laughs> so my kids are too, so different from each other. One is like really needy and wants me to do everything for him. He's the oldest one. He's not the, I wouldn't say he's 
focus on responsibility the way you were as the oldest child. And then my daughter is more independent and headstrong. And so I navigate them both very differently. But what I'm trying to create for them is all these dignity building moments, because that's when like the challenges in life happen, you're going to like your soul is going to attach reattach to those those things. Like I did that by myself. Um, I was able to move through that. And when people do things for you, um, you lose the chance to build dignity, right? It's like fighting through the hard stuff, I think is so much more important than just getting things done. That's so great. I completely agree with you. Um, Okay, so, um, well, congratulations. Kudos to you for picking the right health insurance plan for your family at the age of 13, because we know adults listening are smiling and laughing right now because they just never want to do that job um, for themselves and their own family. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about how um, you moved from management consulting into the beauty business. I think you, is it right that you went to business school in between? I did. I did. Yeah. So I, I I would probably characterize the first decade of my career as being all forms of management consulting slash internal strategy. So, you know, I spent time um, in on the on the consulting firm side of things. I, I worked internally at brands. Um, ultimately, I, I think that the next sort of like big pivotal moment in my career was um, when I went back to business school. I went to Wharton. I studied marketing and finance. And um, I actually graduated um, and took an offer to join the Boston Consulting Group because I had worked um, in my summer internship with BCG and specifically had worked with Bath and Body Works as my main client. Um, I love the experience. I, I loved um, I love the BCG culture. I love the sort of the big picture thinking. Um, and I came back full time and the entire team from BCG had moved over to the client side. So they had all taken jobs at L Brands because they all loved it as well. And um, so I came back and spent a couple of years at BCG doing um, a variety of different kind of industry uh, projects. And then um, the woman who had been my manager during my summer who at this point had now been at um, at Elbrands for two years, um, came calling and she said, you know, we'd love you to join the the team over here at Elbrands. And, you know, it, you you would get to basically do what you love to do all the time instead of being sort of on a project by project basis. And and I thought that, you know, what what an amazing opportunity to do what I love every single day. And so I went over to Elbrands and joined um, a group that was essentially an internal strategy group um, that reported into the Enterprise Center um, into the office of the vice chairman. And I spent a year there. It was a rotational program. And the intention was really to bring in people who are coming from ex-consulting, ex-finance, and then seed them into operating roles. So I spent a year in the central role and then um, was uh, asked to join in my first operating role, Victoria's Secret side, um, as a beauty merchant. And that was my first job in beauty. So I guess at that time, because uh, the beauty, selling beauty brands outside of um, their own brand was a new initiative, right? Um, for the company? Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they had been, they had a mix. Um, so I would say they had their own brand, um, which I think a lot of us who, um, you know, grew up as, as you know, like, every weekend mall going um folks you you re- you remember like love spell and and pure seduction and 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 um you know the dream angels fragrances and things like that so really um wonderful uh owned uh you know fragrance and body care lines they also at the time were um undergoing undergoing an expansion to bring in certain third party brands to really diversify the assortment and the portfolio i actually worked on both sides so i spent some time managing both third party brands as well as um like owning certain portions of the internal private label brands as well which is a great experience for anybody to understand the difference between a 
true vertically integrated specialty retailer that does private label versus understanding what it's like to also be a buyer managing third party brands. It's right. it's a it's a very different kind of dynamic. It's two businesses in one. For it sure. really is. Yeah, it's two different businesses. So learned a lot in both in both roles. Um, so young, I'm giggling inside because anyone listening to this who's in their 40s is having a walk down memory lane because it'd be like after school watching Brady Bunch reunions as a kid and then hanging out in the mall as a teenager. Like that's what we did. I know totally. I feel like I've I've given away so much. I mean, like pretty soon you're going to know exactly like my birth date because I've given away so much of like the era in which I grew up. <laughs> I mean, it's really fascinating. And it's not just because of COVID, because pre-COVID, um, hanging out in the mall was less less enticing, um, I think, to teenagers. But like, that's how we spent our time. We went to the movies, we went to the mall, and we went to the diner and ate cheese fries. That's how I spent my time. Cheese fries. Oh, man. <laughs> so this is amazing. Yeah, so this whole mall culture thing, um, I, I, you know, we could probably spend hours talking about what mall culture used to be, but, um, okay. Like Bath and Body Works, I think is, um, such an interesting company. I, I mentioned to you that probably at the time you were at, um, limited brands, I was at L'Occitane Provence. So we were always looking to see what was going on there. And then That's you did right, partnership yeah. with Cavanta Manim. So, um, you know, I was definitely in your stores all the time and doing field research. Um, and that's one of the most fun things I think about being in our business is doing field research and exploring what's happening in the marketplace. And people who tell me that they don't look at competitors, I'm like, well, that's the fun thing to do. Like, it how really do you spend is. your time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, I think um, being in beauty, you just you just have to have a personal passion for the category and the product. And if you have a personal passion for beauty, you're always out there looking at competitors, even just as a consumer. So I, you know, I spent um, two years of Victoria's Secret on the beauty side, and then I had the the great um, fortune to be asked to move over to the Bath and Body Works side of things and really started um, the beginning of a decade-long career at Bath and Body Works, um, starting from uh, working on a portion of the portfolio. I was, I was the um, director working with the CO Bigelow brand. And then ultimately, by the time my, um, you know, the end of my decade, I was the senior vice president for all of personal care, which included fragrance and body care brands, all of it, basically anything that kind of touched your body was something, was an area um, that I was accountable for. That's so awesome. So from when you were at Victoria's Secret working with third-party brands, my guess is you met a lot of founders and interesting brand owners and C-suite from those brands. We did. And we, uh, you know, I met a lot of really interesting folks. We we did a lot of, you know, to your point about um, about keeping an eye on the competition, we spent a lot of time out in the competitive landscape. So L Brands has a philosophy around always keeping an eye on what's happening in the outside world. Um, and that means both, you know, outside, you know, walking the mall, for sure. But it also means things like, you know, flying to Tokyo and seeing what's happening in the world of J-beauty or flying to Paris and seeing what's happening in, um, you know, in the department stores in, in Paris and going to Selfridges in London. And so there's such a, a, a view that you have to know what's going on in the outside in order to make the right choices for what you're doing internally. So it, it was just a really fascinating learning experience. Started at Bath and Body Works and then continue through um, the tenure that I had at, at Bath, uh, sorry, started at Victoria's Secret and then continued through the tenure that I had at Bath and Body Works. And how did you end up at EOS? So um, when I left Bath and Body Works, I really wanted to take, um, you know, my time to figure out what I wanted. I, I really wanted to do something more entrepreneur, entrepreneurial and, and leaner um, and thought that it would take me um, quite some time to kind of find the right thing. In my history, if I look back at my career, my my history isn't really a typical CMO type of 
profile. The first decade of my career was as like a consultant slash finance business person, you know, and then I moved from there and worked in specialty retail. Um, And there the role was really sort of a mix between marketer and merchant, which is a little bit different than working um, as a true CMO. And so when the opportunity came up much faster than I had anticipated um, to join and lead this iconic brand and be their first ever global CMO, I just thought like, I can't pass this up. This is such a great opportunity. It's exactly what I'm looking for. I wanted to be able to deepen my marketing skills um, and lead a true world-class brand, but on a scale that was a, a little more manageable and leaner because I was really itching to get, um, you know, sort of more entrepreneurial um, experience under my belt. And so this basically checked every box for me. And um, was it a hard decision to make to leave? It it wasn't. I mean, I, I will say, I think once you've spent, um, you know, at that point, I had spent 10 years at Bath and Body Works and all in, I had spent about 14 years at L Brands overall. And and that's a really, um, you know, a a really respectable amount of time to spend in any enterprise. I will will forever be grateful for the lessons that I learned and and the fact that I really grew up in that company. Um, And I think that what I I took away from it was truly best in class um, principles around retail, merchandising, brand building, consumer insights. Um, but I was really ready for what was next for me in my career. And so EOS was the perfect place for me to move on to. I haven't spent a lot of time studying EOS other than just, you know, um, being a customer and seeing the brands. And, uh, you know, what um, what astounds me is how some companies can start with a lip balm, right? So you start with a lip balm in a fascinating shape, and then you can grow into like a massive organization, global brand. How does that happen that like, right? Because some companies start with a product and they fizzle away or they stay small or whatever. Like, how do you take one thing and turn it into something huge? Well, I mean, I, I, I honestly wish I could answer that question because that, that, you know, I could bottle that and sell it. <laughs> but because the reality is that a lot of the, um, you know, the, the momentum happened before I, before I joined the company and I, and I'm, and I'm really um, so inspired by and impressed by what the team did before I even arrived here. So, um, you know, the the company's been around um, by the time I took it over, it was about the brand was about nine years old um, and it had really just exploded across, you know, in personal care, but also across social media. So for a lip balm brand, it's kind of amazing when you have like almost two million followers on Instagram as a lip balm brand. Right. Um, So who else can say that? Um, And so I, I think it's it's really incredible what the team accomplished by turning what was essentially a pretty functional and not particularly exciting product category and making it a desirable must have, you know, social movement, really, like a a moment. Um, And so um, really my job was to basically take that and figure out how we could grow for the future and take what had been that first phase of explosive growth and, you know, understandably was like, you know, just sort of like leveling off into into maturity and then figure out where our next phase of growth is going to come from. And so when I came in, um, that was really my mandate was to say, you know, let's assess the brand. Let's figure out like, how do we, um, you know, maintain the health of what we've already built, but also position this brand for the future, which would which would mean diversification of the portfolio. It would mean um, expansion of sort of the marketing tactics and, and strategies. It would mean growing out the team to be able to be, uh, you know, a team that could scale with future growth. So those were all the things that I sort of tackled um, in the in the first like year of, of my joining EOS. So I have, um, I'm creating parallels in my mind between 
Bath and Body Works and EOS on this basis. So EOS is a lip balm that people love and covet and they have like different colors and flavors and they just have like a whole arsenal, right? They probably have buckets of them in their bathroom and many toss in their purse and gym bag. And then you had at Bath and Body Works this like cultish following on collecting hand sanitizers, mini hand sanitizers. That's right. That is like such a <laughs> like odd and strange path of growth that like I don't know that anyone can explain the psychology here, why teenagers were obsessed with this, but they're kind of similar, right? There's like young people obsessed with collecting these um, items that, yeah, you can get hand sanitizer anywhere, you can get lip balm anywhere, but there's this, um, you know, like excitement and energy around these two products that um, are like next level energies, no, that's that's I think that's exactly right. I honestly think that that's what maybe the the team at EOS saw in me was that despite the fact that they're um you know they were totally different product categories, a lot of the underlying um connection points with consumers were very similar. So it this idea of taking a um, not particularly exciting product category and turning it into a desirable category, the idea of creating collectible behavior. Um, the idea of creating um, a fashion pulse of newness in something that isn't typically what you would consider a fast fashion category. Um, and then in doing it in a way that feels delightful and happy and fun. I think these are all things that are very similar between my prior experience and what I'm doing today, even if the product categories are different. Yeah, this idea of collecting um it makes me think of gaming. I don't know if you have people in your life who are big gamers, but like on Fortnite, my kids, you know, they buy and collect these skins, right? These outfits and for these players. Um, and they don't use them all, but the idea of collecting them is super exciting. My son collects Funko Pops for, the, for these little like plastic sculptures. Um, he doesn't do anything with them, right? The, the, this collector mindset, the same, I guess, with stamp collectors. I mean, I don't, coin collectors, I guess they don't really do anything except know that they're... Um, together, you know, and it's like a passion project. Yeah. So I've never really thought of this kind of collectibles mindset as part of beauty. I just watched my friend's daughter collect hand sanitizers from Bath and Body Works. And like my my friend would be like going to Bath and Body Works on the first day that the new pumpkin one was available. I'm like, how are you spending your time this way? You know, it's like, it's what her daughter wanted. So it's what she did. It was like the Cabbage Patch Kids for, I guess, you and I. Um, so, but yeah, this idea of collectible behavior is really fascinating for beauty because I do think that it's, um, I guess I I'm I hadn't seen it in the same way that I see it with other categories, but now that you yeah. um, draw that connection for me, I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, and I and I think that if you if you um, if you think about it on the opposite end of the spectrum, and you think about even things like um, fashion drops, um, limited edition fashion drops, and how so much of that is about um, you know kind of you have to have the 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 scarce and limited edition item a lot of that actually drove our thinking around um when we created at eos within my within my first like six months of joining eos we created the strategy around micro batches so these are limited run items that launch a few times a year and once they're done they're done they don't they don't come back um we, we don't stock them to to sell them 365 and it's really a way of number one, rewarding our super fans who come along on this journey with us. But number two, of really um, leaning into this sort of collectible, you know, rare scarcity type driven um, behavior that um, that we love. We love the fact that our, our consumers are delighted when they can have something like that, that, that nobody else has. Yeah, I guess the next phase of this for our industry is how do you um, create that community of collectors 
and do it with less waste, right? Like we're, I don't know what those answers are. We'll figure that out, but um, give them that sense of um, excitement and indulgence and special qualities um, without like, I don't need more shampoo bottles in my life, right? <laughs> like, I have, like, right. you know, so many of them, these hard plastic bottles. Um, so I, I'm curious to see. Well, you will solve that problem for us so young, I'm sure, in the next few years. <laughs> well, I mean, there are a lot of us in the industry who are who are trying to un, um, unlock this, and, and, and it is a big area. I'm thinking about sustainability and not and how do, how do we not add more waste into our world is a big thing. For us right now, like many beauty brands, we are partners with TerraCycle, and so we have a way for, you know, as our consumers use up our products, um, which typically in the beauty industry, a lot of the packaging is hard to recycle. Um, we have this partnership where we pay for consumers to be able to send their product, their empties to TerraCycle, which where they can be upcycled into things like park benches and playground equipment. And so by doing that, we can create a second life for um, all of these products that created delight in their first life. They can create delight for a second life. Oh, I love that. Um, okay. Now you have a new customer because I can um, do something with my empties. Okay, my last question for you, because um, we talked about it before, is, you know, to be successful in beauty, you really have to be a consumer of beauty first and love it. Um, My challenge, though, so young, is when I, like, try to have, like, recreational time, my body goes to beauty, but that's not a break from work, right? You know, like going to the spa is actually work for me, right? I'm paying attention to protocols and training, right? Like I'm, you know, what products are they using? What ingredients are they talking about? So how do you actually take a break from beauty and clear your head for a little while? Well, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, I, I just, I personally happen to love beauty. And so it doesn't feel stressful for me at all. I, I, to, to indulge in whether it's, it's shopping or, um, services or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love to engage in the category, but overall, I mean, I just, I also love to just spend some time with my family and I love to spend time. This past year has been such a gift for me because while, um, certainly there have been a lot of things that have been very challenging and difficult over the past year, I never expected to be able to spend this much time as a family together. We we eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner together as a family. That that never happened before. And so um, by its very nature, the fact that I'm spending this much time together with my kids and with my husband, um, it has been just sort of, um, you know, the, the glass half full on what has been a very challenging year. And I would say that that's probably my best way of getting real about like just life and what's important in life. Well, that is such a beautiful way to end our conversation. So young, this has been so fun to chat with you, to walk down memory lane um, and learn from you. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you so much, Jody. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with So Young. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.